So uh, out there in our audience, how about giving the Lord some praise in uh, Cyberland out there, wherever you are, tuning in uh, on our live stream here on Facebook. So again, we're glad that you're here. If uh, you would take your Bible, if you have one, and open it up to John chapter 13. We as a church have been engaged in a series of messages on the identity of Jesus as he displayed that identity in the Gospel of John through a series of I am statements. You know, whenever you say I am, whatever you fill in the blank with after that says a lot about how you think and how the direction that your life is moving. For example, if you say, well, I am unworthy, or I am unlovable, or I am ugly, or I am this. And so oftentimes we fill our minds with negative things when we fill in that blank. And that, those negative thoughts just continue to roll over like a, a videotape in our minds. And so your life always moves in the direction of your most dominant thinking. And so Jesus comes along and says, you know what, uh, let me re-identify you. Uh, I want you to come by faith in relationship with me, and I want to turn your identity around. I, I want you to see yourself as God sees you. So we are in John chapter 13. If you want to turn there, we're going to be in chapters 13 and 14 on the I am statement of Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one can come unto the Father except by me. And so we want to set the context for that statement and the other dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples as he was unfolding what it means to be the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, most of us... Um, Probably at some point in our lives, we have received some news from someone, whether it was over the phone or personally, face-to-face, and what that person said to you so set you back that your faith was shaken, uh, your future seemed uncertain, maybe um, fear gripped your heart to the point that it, just, it was just filled with worry and anxiety and just wondering, what, what is going to happen in my future? And so... Uh, perhaps it's news from your doctor. Uh, you receive the news that you have a terminal illness. Maybe as a parent, you, you received a phone call only to find out that your child was killed in a car accident. Maybe it was, for you, it was you know, a loved one is about to die, and you were called to come to the bedside because they only had a few hours left. Or maybe for you, it's the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic that has filtered its way across our world and just watching the news and hearing all the stories about this has created such worry and fear and anxiety in your life. And so whenever we receive news like that, there is always an ultimate question that we have to ask ourselves. And the question is this, what will sustain you? What will sustain you when your faith is shaken, when your future seems uncertain, or when fear has so gripped your heart that it is flooded with worry and anxiety to the point that, you know, you're just like having heart palpitations. And so where will you go? To whom will you turn in these areas of your life when this hits you, when this grips you? Well, this is exactly where the disciples are in their relationship with Jesus. Jesus has come to the very end of his ministry. His time on earth is about to expire. And so Jesus gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal. And during that celebration, Jesus says to his disciples who are gathered with him in that upper room, there's one of you who's going to be betray me. Someone is going to betray me, and you're going to turn me over to the leaders, the chief priests, the religious leaders, and it's going to result in my abuse, my being beaten, my death. And so Jesus had described this on many occasions for his disciples, but they never really clearly understood what it meant for him to die. And so he springs this news on them, and immediately they want to know, who is it? Who is it? And so John is leaning up against Jesus, and Peter says to John, hey, ask Jesus, who is it? Who's going to betray him? And of course, Jesus says, the one to whom I dip this bread in this cup, and I, I hand it to them, and of course, it was Judas Iscariot. And Jesus looked at Judas and said, Whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And so Judas leaves at that moment in time. And so the news that one of the disciples was going to do this was um, faith-wrecking enough, but then he made another statement that really just rocked their world. And he said to them, now I want you to know, I'm going to leave you alone. 
I'm going to be leaving. You're going to be alone. Now, keep in mind that Jesus was their anchor. They had been following him for three years. They left everything in order to follow him. Their hopes and dreams were pinned on Jesus becoming this Messiah that would rule over Rome and over the world. And now Jesus says, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to leave you. So let's look in John chapter 13 and verse 31. When he was, when he was gone, Jesus said, that is when Judas left, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him? If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By, all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now notice how Jesus instructs them. He says, my, my children, my little children. It's almost like a father sitting down at a table with his family, and he's about to explain some news. He's about to break open some instructions so that they understand what it is he's going to be asking of them. And so his kids, his disciples, they're troubled, they're worried, they're fearful, they're anxious, they have questions, and certainly their faith is being put to the test. In fact, their faith is going to be shaken to its core. And so there are some seasons, those of you who are parents, you know there are seasons as a parent in the lives of your children. They experience things that um, forever creates um, some fears or maybe some circumstances. They're trying to process the reality of life. And as a parent, you sit down and maybe at the dinner table and you say, you know what, let's help you to determine what is real and what is not real in this circumstance in which you find yourself. Your children are young. For example, you have to help them differentiate between what is real. No, monsters do not live under your bed. They do not live in your closet. That is not reality. And so you're trying to instruct them and guide them. This is what Jesus is doing in these verses as he's trying to navigate the fears and help the disciples process their anxiety. And so Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment, that the world is going to know that you are my disciples, the world's going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another, how you treat one another. And then all of a sudden, after Jesus says that, Peter, one of his disciples, says, um, uh, Lord, like, notice in verse uh, 38, Lord, where are you going? Like, um, you know, this whole um, loving each other thing, this new commandment, that's okay, but let's put that aside right now because I want you to focus in on, like, where are you going? You just told us you're leaving. Where are you going? And so the question before the disciples is the same question that lies before you and I when our faith is shaken. When all of a sudden your future seems uncertain, fear has gripped your heart, the question is, to whom are you going to go to? To whom are you going to turn to whom are you going to rest your faith upon? This is the question that's facing the disciples in this moment in their lives. It is the question that is facing us as we face this pandemic virus that is, you know, stretching its wings over the entire world. And so Peter, Thomas, and Philip all have very distinct questions they want to ask Jesus pertaining to his leaving. And so Jesus answers their question he seeks to calm their fears. He seeks to build their faith. And what he does in response to their question is, he gives them a promise. And so I want us to look at three promises that Jesus gave to his disciples. They're the same three promises that we need to anchor ourselves into, not only for today, but for tomorrow and next month and next year, because our future looks uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen as this pandemic unfolds, how, how, how vast will it become? How many deaths will there be in the end? What's going to happen to our economy? What's going to happen to people's jobs? There are just a thousand questions that are coming at our minds that is creating this sense of worry, fear, and anxiety. And so Jesus gives us three very distinct promises. So Peter, out of the gate, he asks him that question. And so as Peter is processing Jesus' de departure and um, 
anxiety and fear is rolling around, notice how Jesus replied. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later, which prompts another question. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so notice Peter's response to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, uh, you don't need to die for me. I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. And it's almost like a Western film when two gunmen are like, you know, head to head, and they're about to, you know, get in this gun battle. And so it's like Jesus is saying, no, uh, I've come. I'm I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. Peter says, no, you're not going to die for me. I'm going to die for you. And so it's like this head-to-head kind of conflict that's going on. And so Peter's Peter's response really displays our human nature, which says, hey, Jesus, I've got this one. You don't have to worry about it. I got this. I can take care of this on my own. Jesus, if you need a hero in this story, I'm going to be your hero. I'll play the part. And um, I'll, get, I'll fix this thing, whatever it is that's going to cause you to leave. And that's the part of our human nature and psyche on display today. We love heroes, right? We, we watch all kinds of uh, movies with heroes, Spider-Man, Batman, Thor, Captain America, Wonder Woman. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And even as a child, you probably thought of a time when, you know, you got older and you're going to be the NBA basketball star and you're going to make the final shot for the three-point at the buzzer and it's going to, you know, you're going to win the NBA title and championship or maybe you're going to hit the home run in the World Series that's going to cause you to, to, to win and, and you're going to be the hero of the game. This is, what, this is kind of what Peter is doing. He's like, Jesus, I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to stand in your place. Now, it really sounds noble of Peter. It really does. You need someone to go and die, fix this. I'll die, I will fix it. And his response is the epitome of self-righteousness, which says in essence, Jesus, I really don't need your help. I really don't need a savior. I really don't need someone to fix my life. I can handle it. I can do it on my own. I can clean myself up. I can come to God whenever I want. I'm good, I'm ready, you don't need to worry about me, I will fix me. So it leads us to the question, what did Jesus come to fix, and how did he fix it? What did he come to fix, and how did he fix it? Jesus came to warn us of a presence that is far more lethal and widespread than the disease of the coronavirus. It is a disease that strikes every man, woman, and child. It is a disease that ends only in death, not only physical death, but it can end in eternal death. Our species, according to Jesus, lives in the grip of a pandemic outbreak called sin. And so in the question of this pandemic outbreak of sin that has visited the world in which we live, what is our hope? What is your hope in the face of that virus? And so the entire story of the Bible and what brings Jesus to this moment in time in his life is that God entered into a world that was infected by a virus called sin, and the wages of sin leads to death. That's how you know you have the virus. You are one day going to physically die. And Jesus lived among sick people, not wearing a chemical protective suit, uh, but breathing the same air as us, eating the same food as we do. He died in isolation, excluded from people, exceedingly far from the Father on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that he might provide this sick world with an antidote to the virus that is pandemic in our world. And it's the virus of sin. That he might heal us. That he might give us eternal life. Another I am statement of Jesus was found in John chapter 11. Here's what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so what Jesus was saying is that those who believe in him, trust in him to be Savior and Lord of their life, even though this physical body will one day cease existing, that it will come to a closure, that it will cease to function, I experience physical death, 
Although I have died physically, my spirit, my soul has moved into the presence of God because Jesus has provided the pathway into God's presence. Listen, it's not until you lose your fear of death that you're really able to face life. And one of the reasons why the world is so um, fearful and so anxious and so worried is because that issue of death is something that our enemy, Satan, holds over us as something that, is, that we must fear, that we must you know, just like cower away from. And Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is saying, if you're battling the disease of sin, don't worry. I will fix it. You're battling marriage problems, you've tried to fix it. Jesus said, I can fix that. You're battling addictions, you've tried to overcome those addictions. You couldn't fix it, but Jesus says, I can fix that in your life. And we say, well, uh, well, Lord, I, I don't know. I, I, I really think I've got this. I really think I can, I can overcome this. I can do this on my own. And so we refuse to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. And this is where Peter is. Peter's not, he's just refusing to humble himself, and he's saying, in essence, Jesus, look, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll fix this. I'll take care of it. I'll make things better. And so um, the fact is, we make lousy saviors. He says, Peter, when push comes to shove, and you think you're going to lay your life down for me, before you even get to that point, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, what Jesus predicted will be fulfilled in just a few hours. Jesus will be carried off, and um, like he said, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you. He's going to be carried off by the, the officials of, of the religion, of the Jewish religion, and uh, taken off into various trials. Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest, and there he denies Jesus three times. And when the cock crows, he looks up, and he's eyeball to eyeball to Jesus, and he just absolutely tears him up. Listen. Like Peter, any time we try to be self-proclaimed saviors, it always ends up in disappointing ourselves, disappointing people around us, and alienating ourselves from God. That's exactly what happened to Peter in that courtyard. He's, he, the moment he saw Jesus' eyes, he just fell and, and weeped because he was so disappointed in himself. He really thought he could die for Jesus and stand in the gap. But he just disappointed himself, and he felt like he disappointed Jesus and that he'd alienated himself from God. And so when we say, I've got this, leave me alone, I'll do it myself, I'll fix this, Jesus says, you don't fix anything. I'm the one who can fix you. I'm the one who can save you. I am the only antidote to the sin problem in the world. And that's why he came. And so our, when our faith is shaken, when our future is uncertain, when fear is gripping our hearts, there is a promise, and here's the promise that he gave them, the promise of a secure future, the promise of a secure future. Let's look at that promise in chapter 14 in verses 1 through 4. Jesus said this to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And so Jesus says, the antidote to your fear and your troubled heart is to put your faith and trust in a promise that he's making. It is the promise of a secure future. One of the reasons you do not have to cower in fear and worry and anxiety is if your future is secure, what do you have to lose? You really have nothing to lose. And um, so Jesus says, who are you going to trust? He says, trust in God, also trust in me. Well, what are we trusting in? We're trusting in the fact that in my Father's house, there is room for you. In other words, Jesus came into the world to make room for you in the Father's house, and that secures your future. That's a great comfort. The word room is the noun form of the, word, of the verb abide. And what he's saying is, I have made a place 
where you can abide with me for all of eternity. But this abiding isn't something that is, you know, put off until eternity. You can abide with Jesus in the here and now. Next week, we're going to look at the, the I am statement of I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And so you know as secured for you through Christ, there is a room for you to abide in God's presence forever. And he also says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we tend to think when we hear that, that Jesus being, being a carpenter before he started out into his earthly ministry for the last three years of his life, uh, we think Jesus is like, got, you know, he's got his power tools out, his saw and his uh, saw horses, and he's up there building us some kind of mansion. That's not what he's talking about here. Yes, there are rooms for us. There's room for us in the Father's house, provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not up there swinging a hammer. Uh, this world prepare, he says, I'm preparing a place for you. It means the way I'm going to prepare that place is I'm going to go to the cross. The way Jesus prepares a place for you, he gives his life. When Jesus goes to the cross, he went there in order to prepare a place, a room, a means by which you can abide with him in the here and now and all throughout eternity. And so Jesus is saying, you don't think I would go to the cross and give my life and somehow forget about you? Not a chance. He says it's done. While on the cross, he said it is, it is finished. The way has been prepared. Remember what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one who's preparing the way. I am the one who is the antidote, the vaccine that inoculates you against the, the power and, uh, of sin that re results in eternal separation from God or eternal death. Jesus came to make room for us, to prepare the way for us, to enter into God's presence, to secure our future. And Peter, if, you, if I go, won't, won't I come back and, and get you? And so Jesus, the only way. But what is our typical response? It's kind of like Peter. We may hear these things, know these things. Maybe you've heard this before. But our response oftentimes is like Peter. And Peter, you know, I don't need a Savior. I can fix this. I can do this on my own. Millions of people live every day thinking to themselves, I don't need a Savior. I don't need Jesus. I can be my own Savior. I can do it on my own. I can do it myself. One day my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. One day I'm going to work my way into heaven. And so we spend our lives trying to pay God back, trying to impress God, and trying to be good enough so that, oh, God, you, maybe if I'm better, you'll love me more. Maybe if I'm uh, better, you'll answer my prayers more often. And so we spend our entire lives trying to earn the love that God wants to give to us unconditionally through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to impress God, then you listen to and place your trust in Jesus. Because here's the essence of the gospel. Here's the essence of what Jesus was saying to his disciples in this fearful time in their life. Jesus says, I'm going to leave my place, heaven, and I'm going to come to your place, earth, and I'm going to take your place on the cross, and then we're going to go back to my place in heaven. That's the gospel. That's, what, that's a secure future. So by putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone, um, rather than in my ability to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, to earn a place in heaven, rather than putting my trust and faith in my ability to compare myself to others and say, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, th that doesn't work. That is not the response that God has brought to us through Jesus. And so... The essence is we've got to follow him. It's not about just where you're going. It's about who are you following? Who are you putting your trust in, Jesus or yourself? The promise Jesus made is the same promise he gives to us. I've gone to secure a place for you so that where I am abiding, where I am dwelling, there you can be with me. And when I lose my fear of death, then I lose my fear of any kind of pandemic virus, because even if I die physically, I still win. I'm like the Apostle Paul. You know, whether I live or die, I win, right? If I live, you know, it's, it's for Christ's gain. It's for his glory. If I die, it's for Christ's gain. It's for Christ's glory. My spirit and soul go into the, 
the, the place in which Jesus has already prepared and the pathway he made that preparation through the cross at Calvary. Here's the second promise because Thomas, all of a sudden, he kind of wakes up and he asks a question. Notice what it says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. For now on, you do know him because what? You have seen me. Now, what Thomas is forgetting is what oftentimes we forget. And that is, he knows Jesus, and therefore he knows the God of the universe. For Jesus and the Father are one. They are one essence. God has displayed himself in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Three ways of identity, but one essence. It's all the same God. And so God took on human flesh, came into the world, so that Christ could display what the Father is really like. And Jesus says in essence, Thomas, you've been with me for three years. Everything you've seen me do, everything you've heard me teach, I have done that to show you to display what the Father is like. And so in Thomas's thought processes, he has not fully grasped who Jesus is. That he's the God of the universe who stepped into the realm of humanity, who adorned himself in human flesh to take our place as a sacrifice for our sin so that we might go to that place that God calls heaven. So Jesus just flat out says to Thomas, 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 I'm the way. All right? I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one is coming to the Father except through me. I'm going, I'm going the reason I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare the way. I'm going to prepare the place. And the way that I'm preparing that is through the cross. I'm dying for the sins of humanity so that through a relationship with me, you can enter into that secure future. But here's the second promise he's giving them. And that is the promise of strategic, of strategic um, direction. Strategic direction. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 says this. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, Blessings and cursings, now choose life so that you and your children may live. And so what the Old Testament is saying to us, fast forwarding into the New Testament, is that Jesus, Jesus will determine whether or not you experience life or death, whether you experience abundance or scarcity, whether you experience blessing or cursing. It all hinges on the decision of Jesus. Jesus says, I've come to prepare the way into my presence. I am the truth. I'm going to tell you how to get there, and I am the life. And so what Jesus wants to do is to lead you from a life of shame into a life of salvation, a life of forgiveness. And so it's from guilt to innocence, life to holiness. This is the cycle that you see all throughout the Old Testament. There are three threads in the Old Testament that Jesus came to fulfill in giving us direction in life. And so in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve stepped across the one guardrail that God set of a tree they were not to partake in. And when they stepped across that guardrail, all of a sudden they discovered that they were, they were shameful, that they were embarrassed, uh, that they were naked. And so the Bible says out of their shame and guilt, they ran and hid themselves from God. And so immediately God comes into the garden, and he's looking for them. And he says, Adam, where are you? Well, they're hiding themselves because now humanity is experiencing something it had never experienced up to that point, shame and guilt. And so uh, God comes to the garden, pursuing them, looking for them. And when he finds them, he asks them some questions. And then God takes an animal, an innocent third party. He sacrifices that animal, and he clothes Adam and Eve and he closed their nakedness. And what he was saying through this sacrifice is, I am going to shelter, I'm going to clothe your shame. I'm going to cover up your guilt. And the way that I'm going to cover your shame and I'm going to cover your guilt is through the sacrifice of this animal. And so in the Old Testament, there's a sacrificial system that was established through the nation of Israel all throughout their history. And um, it followed the pattern that when you sin, and you knew that you were guilty, and you felt shameful about your guilt, that the only way you could alleviate that shame and guilt is to take an innocent third party, an animal 
the, the appropriate sacrifice, go to the tabernacle and later the temple, offer that up as a sacrifice, and the shed blood of that animal would cover your shame and it would cover your guilt. And that's why Jesus came into the world. Because all of us, when we think back over our lives, there are many things that we feel guilty that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've done, the people that we've hurt, the relationships that have been destroyed, and we feel shameful and we hide those things, we camouflage those things, we wear a mask because we don't want anyone else to find out about these things. But God did not come into the world so that we would live our entire existence on planet earth filled with guilt and shame. Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb, the third party, the innocent party, to die on a cross so that by shedding his blood, he could in turn through our trust and faith in him cover or clothe our shame and our guilt forever. And so the question is, will you accept that wonderful gift of salvation? It's given to you. And so if you reject that, then the Bible says when we cease to function on this earth, that we will be eternally separated from God. So Jesus went to, what, secure an eternal future for you so that when you die, you know you're entering into his presence And when you enter into his presence, you're not coming there clothed in shame. You're not coming clothed in guilt. You're coming into God's presence clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus has removed all of your shame, all of your guilt for all of eternity. And it's not because of what I have done. It's not because I became a self-savior. It's not because somehow I could work my way into God's favor, into God's love. God's love is unconditional. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life, uh, that word um, kind of trips us up a little bit. We think, of, well, uh, that's going to happen after I die. No, eternal life is not just for after you die. It is for the here and now. It doesn't just speak of duration, but in terms of quality. Eternal life is not just a future destination. It is a current reality. And the reality is this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not have to live and operate under the umbrella of shame and guilt because you have been enveloped, you have been wrapped, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the sinless, perfect Lamb of God who stood in our place who paid our debt so that he could move us from shame and guilt to a life of forgiveness and a life of freedom. Jesus wants to lead you to a life from bondage into liberation. We see this story in the book of Exodus. And so uh, Israel is in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. And God raises up a man named Moses to lead them out of captivity. And he wants to lead them into the promised land, the land of freedom. And so Jesus again fulfills this promise. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first began his ministry on earth, he said this. He goes into the synagogue of his hometown. He says, as he opens up the scroll to Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, there's more than one way to being poor. You can be poor financially, but you can also live in poverty in other ways. You can, um, you know, you don't have to be physically blind. You can be spiritually blind. You don't have to be a prisoner in an actual prison. You could be in prison to your thoughts. You can be in prison to your habits and to your addictions. And so Jesus stood up publicly for the first time, and he announced his mission and his purpose for coming into the world. Jesus is saying, my mission is liberation. I've come to bring freedom and liberation to those who are oppressed and bring them into a life where they are created and designed to live. In other words, Jesus came to set us free from our unhealthy habits, from the patterns and the cycles in life that we cannot break, that holds us in bondage and enslavement and in prison. Whatever trial, tragedy, trauma has hurt you, whatever hurt, habit, or hang-up that is imprisoned you, Jesus says, I've come that you might have eternal life. I've come that you might shed off, just throw off the shame and guilt and clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ. I've come so that you can walk in freedom. 
so that Jesus can set us free and liberate us from those things that hold us bound in life. And then Jesus also wants us to live a life of exile to restoration. So in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, was carried off into Babylonian captivity. And there they would lose their land, their culture, their temple, and really one another. They were scattered all throughout the empire. And so God promised through the prophets that he would bring an end to that exile after 70 years of time. And so when that end came and God brought his people back into the promised land in which he, he, he gave to them, fast forwarding to Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 8 heals a man who is a leper. And then Jesus says to him, I want you to go to the priest and I want you to show yourself so he can declare you socially clean, spiritually clean, and enable you to go back into society and have relationship with other people. And so I find this interesting because Jesus really uh, usually didn't um, have much to do with the priest, but he says to this man, there's only one in this community who can declare you legally clean, spiritually clean, and relationally clean. And so Jesus was not just concerned with this man's physical healing, he was also concerned with restoring his relationships. And that's what Jesus has come to do for us. To restore our relationship between ourselves and God. To restore our relationships between one another. As he gave that command, this is how the world is going to know. That you're my disciples, that you're my followers, that you're trusting me is by your love for one another. By how you treat one another. And so when you think about this promise that Christ has given to us by being the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I want to give you strategic direction. I want you to move from shame to salvation that speaks of forgiveness. I want you to move from bondage to liberation, which speaks of our freedom. I want you to move from exile to restoration, which speaks of our relationships, relationally being back in tune with the very God who has created us. And so maybe you're listening today and you're in a place where you cannot experience life to its fullest because of a cloud of shame and guilt that's pressing in on your life. And the good news is that Jesus took your shame and guilt and he's offering and replacing that through his own righteousness. That is how he has this right relationship with the Father. He is the Father in the flesh, Jesus the Son of God. He wants to make that exchange in your life. That, so that you can remove the guilt and the shame and live life to the fullest that Jesus wants you to live. And maybe you can't live life to the fullest because you're in a cycle that you cannot, you cannot break. It might be an addiction. It might be like the, the negative tapes that keep rolling over in your mind that cause you to move in directions that you know you don't want to go and they're unhealthy for you. They're unhealthy patterns in your life. And Jesus wants to release you from those things. He wants to bring freedom into your life. Maybe you can't live, live your life to the fullest because you feel isolated, lonely. There are broken relationships. And the good news is that Jesus, Jesus has adopted you into his family through faith in him. And he's reconciled the relationship and he enables us to then reconcile the relationships with others. So that's the second promise. And then Philip chimes in. And Philip says this, verse, um, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father that, we will, that, that will be enough for us. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And what is Philip saying? He's saying, this is, Lord, just give us a little bit more revelation. All right, just show us a little bit more about the Father and maybe we'll trust. Maybe we'll, we'll trust these promises. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And so here is Jesus proclaiming truth to Philip. And Philip is less worried about 
Maybe what Jesus is saying, he's saying, Lord, Jesus, I, I need some more evidence. I need more revelation. I, I need to see more. And, and Jesus points out, like, look, have you not seen the miracles I've done, we've done over the last three years? Do you not know I've even raised people from the dead? Is that not enough for you? So sometimes we are like Philip, is that God is moving all around us, especially in this moment in time in our world's history. But we kind of fold our arms and we don't see it. Right? We just kind of neglect it. Rather than Philip's heart getting stirred up and becoming more and more passionate about the things of Jesus and what Jesus wants to do through his disciples, he just kind of, just kind of sets back and is just like armchair critic. You know, well, I remember the day back when, and sometimes we get that way, you know. I don't really sense God moving in my life or around me much anymore. But, you know, back in the day when I was in college or back in the day when, you know, we went to camp or in youth camp, and God just really seemed to do some really incredible things. And so regardless of what it is, if you find yourself playing the critic because the things of God are moving all around you, but you are unimpressed, the question is, when you look around and survey what God is doing, is it enough for you? Is it enough? Do you constantly find yourself saying, I'm unimpressed, because you know your heart's slowly grown cold to the things of God, and you just want you know, another experience, another way that God's going to display himself in this very dramatic and powerful way, but until then, eh, I don't know. I'm telling you, what has happened in our world, God has our attention. He's got the attention of the world. And I believe that God is about to move in a very supernatural way in our world in which we live. And as a church, we cannot afford to squander this opportunity. Whenever you see some, God some, breaking something, like sometimes as a nation of Israel, their hearts grew cold towards God. God would send them in exile. He's trying to break their, the hardness of their hearts. And whenever the brokenness took place, then God would release something. He would release his healing. He would release his power. He would release his grace in his abundance. I believe that God has the world in his grips right now, and he's moving the heart of the church so that as God's breaking humanity off of their self-saviorship after self-confessed saviors, I can do this, I can handle this, I've got this, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, I don't need any of these things. Listen, when God gets done breaking us, there's going to be a releasing, and the releasing is going to be the power of God that as God's going to show himself truthful and worthy through signs, wonders, and miracles, and we as the body of Christ had better be ready to be the champion channels through which that is going to flow. And God's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm about to do something. We need to come and we need to hold our focus in this season. In this time of isolation, can I at least encourage you to take one day a week to fast and pray and ask God to release his power through you so that when needs come up before us, you know, there are many people who, who texted me this week and said, you know, I've lost my job, I've been laid off, I'm a single mom, I'm, you know, I'm a single income, and I'm scared, I'm worried, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and so it's those moments you begin, to, you begin to pray for them and that God would release his, his, and supply his, um, his, his supernatural supply, just release that supernatural supply, which is the third promise that Jesus is giving that God will do as we pray as the body of Christ and that God would bring economic release into their lives or businesses or even churches that are struggling right now because of a lack of participation or businesses, you know, they, they, especially restaurants, they're, they're struggling to keep their doors open. It's time for the church to rise up, that we pray for the miraculous, the deliverance, the power from the deliverance of the power of fear and worry and anxiety, that God would replace that with a peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding that guard our hearts and mind. And so you'll notice what, what God says to, to, um, to Philip, or to, yeah, he says, listen, he says, at no point, in verses 12 through 14, at no point are you inadequate with God and God working in you and through you for the task that he's called us to. In other words, the supernatural supply, what did Jesus say? Jesus says, you're going to be doing things that was even greater than what I did in the Gospels. 
that God's seeing the world and he's bringing the world to a, a point of invitation. And God wants to release his power and the anointing of his Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel upon the lives of people, the power to save and to heal and to deliver. And we are the conduit through which that's going to happen. And God says, you're not, you are inadequate on your own, but you're not inadequate in me. If you, listen, if you just come in my adequacy, he says, and you open yourselves up and you channel yourself and be the agent through which I can, I can move, he says, I will supply every single thing that is needed to which I have called you. If your goal is to exalt Jesus and to display the power of his name. I believe that God is looking for a generation who is willing to stand and display the raw power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment, in this day, in this time. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. That's more than tacking Jesus on the end of your prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. It's about a life that is submerged and submitted to him, abiding in Christ, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, allowing God to channel and supply his, his um, supernatural resources through us into the lives of, of people around us. You see, the disciples are in turmoil. They're afraid. They're worried. They're scared. And Jesus gave them three promises to anchor on, a secure future, a strategic direction, and God's supernatural supply. So in closing, there are three ways you can respond to this pandemic. You can either panic, go out and buy all the toilet paper you can buy and bleach bomb everything around you and bolt your door and Netflix your, you know, let the Netflix queue run for the next 60 days and play Chicken Little like the sky is falling. You can do that. You can respond that way. Or you can, re you can pretend. You can pretend like it's not as bad as everybody's making it out to be and that somehow this is a hoax or, or whatever. And so you poke fun at, and, and rather than panicking, you're just kind of poking fun at what's going on. It's business as usual. And you're just a little bit cavalier because the threat is real. People are dying. People those numbers represent lives. They represent grandfathers and grandmothers and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And, and so, yeah, it, it's real. We can pretend or, or you can anchor in on God's promises. Nothing about this virus is catching God by surprise. But you and I, as the church, have the opportunity to be the agents of light and love in the midst of this. And so let me just challenge you. Check in on your family. Give some toilet paper to someone who needs it, right? Give up some of your supply. Stop hoarding it. Share a meal with somebody who's stressed. Make a phone call. Go visit somebody, maybe at a distance, but at least you're there. You're talking. You're, you're giving them some face-to-face -face contact. You know, go out on the end of your driveway. Gather up your neighbors. Keep your social distance and, and, and just kind of communicate with one another. There are a lot of things that we can do. We can pray for our teachers. We can pray for those who are on the front lines in our medical field and all of those who are out there caring for those who have been struck by this virus. So the verse I want you to anchor in on this week is Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the God, the God who who loves us, the God who cares for us, the God who is anchoring us into these promises. That God, he says, can bring peace into our hearts and into our minds that will just blow the world away. It's beyond human understanding, guarded in Christ Jesus. And so you'll notice he says the way this peace comes, listen, peace is not found in the absence of a storm. Peace is found in the presence and the promises of Jesus. And he says you do it by thanksgiving. It speaks of gratitude over worry. Your brain is an amazing thing, but it cannot multitask. It cannot think of two things at the same time simultaneously. And so you can either, if you want peace, focus on being grateful. What am I grateful for? My secure future, my strategic direction, God's supernatural supply. Because then the weeks and the days and the weeks ahead or months however long this thing carries on. You can either focus your mind on the promises of God that result in peace, or you can focus your mind on the pandemic that only results in panic.
You make the choice. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with Jesus, and I'm going to secure my hope in the promises that he's anchored into my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have intersected the story of human history, not to bring death, not to bring pain, but you have come to bring life. And we thank you that you wrapped yourself with skin of your own creation and subjected yourself to the care of your own creation and personally showed up in our story to give us life. God, I pray for those walking in shame, that they would understand life on the other side of salvation, that they would experience Father, being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so they no longer have to be driven by shame and guilt. For those who are walking in bondage and captivity and feel in prison, I pray, God, that you would offer them life that is found in the freedom of Jesus Christ, that those chains and bondage could be broken and they could be set free and walk in the newness of life, become a new creation in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come. And for those feeling exiled that are lonely, isolated, I pray that they would they would know the nearness of your presence, that they would know you as God as Father through your Son, Jesus Christ, and as you adopt them into your family, their future is secure. Your Holy Spirit provides an endless supply of your power for everyday living. May we live our lives to the fullest through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. And so before I sign off, let me just encourage you, if you've never put your personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is God's solution for your problems. And what God has promised in his word, he wants that to become a reality in your life. So if you'll just open up your heart and by faith, trust in Jesus alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one is coming through the Father except through me. And so you're just opening up your heart and praying and asking him and acknowledging him that you sinned, and that you believe that Jesus came to the world to be the Savior of the world, that he died, was buried, and was resurrected from the grave. Put your hope and trust in him and ask him to save you, to forgive you of your sins, to to just shed the shame and the guilt of your heart and your life. Allow him to clothe you in his righteousness and surrender your heart and life to him as your Savior and Lord. He will direct your life, and he will always direct it in the paths the directions that are best for you. And God will begin through his Holy Spirit to supply your needs through his supernatural ability and abundance. Well, until next week, we love you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.